This is the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCreary. In our last episode, we explored the great resignation in student affairs and uncovered some of the issues that make FSL work particularly difficult and might be responsible for driving a disproportionate number of younger FSL professionals away from the field. One of those issues is the deepening sense of distrust between campus administrators on one side and students, alumni, and headquarters professionals on the other. The quality of those relationships has never been worse than it is right now, particularly among fraternities, which will be the primary focus of this episode. So how are these deepening levels of distrust manifesting themselves in the fraternity and sorority experience? Undergraduate fraternity leaders find themselves allied with their headquarters against their campus judicial affairs offices. More headquarters than ever before are willing to operate unrecognized chapters organized into independent IFCs. Alumni volunteers find themselves increasingly at odds with university administrators. The tension created by these devolving relationships puts campus-based FSL professionals in increasingly difficult positions. Navigating these complexities makes already difficult work even more challenging. To make matters worse, these tensions were further exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic, as campus administrators increasingly found themselves playing the role of party police, punishing fraternity and sorority chapters for violating pandemic social distancing protocols. It's all one big mess. To help frame and better understand this issue, I wanted to dig deeper into the data that we have at Dyad Strategies related to the quality of the relationships between undergraduate fraternity members and these other constituent groups. So I called up someone who most of my listeners will know, Dr. Josh Schutz, my partner at Dyad Strategies and our chief research officer, to help us understand what these data say. So, Josh, exactly how do we measure trust and positive relations at Dyad? Sure. Uh, so, trust and positive relationships are a scale. So, they're, it's, a, it's a collective measure that is comprised of several item statements, right? That collectively we would average the score across those various items and, and come up with like a comprehensive scale score. And, and specifically, there are kind of three different stakeholder groups that we've built items to um, to, to assess, right? And that's the relationship uh, that the fraternity and sorority members have with their headquarters personnel, the relationship they have with their alumni, and the relationship they have with the college and university administration. Think like the deans of students or the FSL um, professionals. And so we use the same seven item statements uh, and just change the reference group so that uh, they're, they're look, they'll look at a group of those items that are about headquarters and then It'll change and the same questions will be asked about the other two groups. Uh, we measure it on a standard five point Likert scale of agreement, strongly disagree to agree. Uh, strongly what, are, agree. what are some examples of some of those items? Sure, so um, I would say that uh, it's gonna capture these aspects of trust that relate to things like the perception of a positive relationship the, head, the, the group has, the stakeholder I should say has with the chapter. Uh, how helpful they perceive that stakeholder to be, how supportive they believe that, that they are of the chapter, um, to the, the extent to which they believe that they trust the chapter will do the right thing and actually ultimately wants them to be successful. Mm. And, and, and lastly, like the perception that they have that the, that that stakeholder group is being honest and transparent with them with respect to the decision making they make about the chapter. So all of those things collectively, right, uh, really get us to this sense of trust with that stakeholder group. Interesting. Yeah. And so in the years that we've been doing this research, what have we learned about trust and positive relations between fraternity members and those three stakeholder groups? Right. Yep. We've learned a little bit, more than a little bit, I'd say. Um, you know, with respect to, we with sororities, we've been measuring these data since 2019. So we have three data points, 19, 20, and 21. Uh, with fraternities, we've done it a year later, so 20 to 21, uh, two years worth of data. Um, when, as it relates to the trust perceptions with alumni, what I would say in the sorority data, we saw basically over the three years, a U-shaped trend. So it started off you know, relatively high. It dipped significantly in 2020 and then shot back up above even the 2019 levels 
in 2021. So, you know, as we think about sororities and their trust of their alums, um, something in 2020 caused it to go down significantly. Mm. Uh, I, have, I have some thoughts about what that might be, but, but that's one thing that we saw. Whereas for fraternities, almost the opposite thing happened. Uh, from 20 to 21, uh, trust with their alums went down. Mm. <laughs> that's a, have you been working on your Michael Barbaro? Do you, are you, do you oh yeah, watch, my, uh, my acknowledgement, my, mm, yeah. Do you, you like that? Do I, do I sound like Michael Barbaro? You really do. I mean, I'm a, I'm an avid listener of the, of the daily. I like the daily. And, uh, I, I picked that up. I, I have some inspiration for this podcast. There's a few that I, that I listen to and the daily is one. So I've been, yeah, I've been working on my, mm, yeah. Yeah. We, you nailed it. That's awesome. right. That's great. Um, Sorry. So, so I didn't probably... mean, I did, I didn't mean to interrupt you with my no, Michael no, Barbaro noises. So when we look specifically at fraternity members, Josh, I have this theory that Fraternity members now trust their national headquarters more than they trust their campus administrators. And, and, and if I went back in time to the time when you and I were both Greek advisors 10 years ago, my guess would be that that word flip-flopped, right? That they trusted their campus administrators more than they trusted their headquarters. Now, obviously, we don't have data going back 10 years. We've only got data going back a couple of years. But what do those trend lines say and who do fraternity members in particular currently trust more, their university administration or their headquarters? That's a great question, Gentry. So um, if we look at just the years 2020 to 2021, which is like I said, where we have fraternity data, um, the trends go in the opposite direction. So they both start about at the same exact place, around a 3.8 out of 5. Let's say that's the, the average score. So FSL Trust, HQ Trust, both start for fraternities, same place. As we move into 2021, coming somewhat off of COVID, HQ Trust has gone up a tenth of a point to about a 3.9. And FSL Trust has begun to plummet all the way down to about a 3.6. So they're literally going in polar opposite directions between at least 2020 and 2021. So fraternity members trust their national headquarters more than they trust their campus administrators. Yeah. And based on the data that you've seen with regards to leadership, involvement, living in a chapter facility, those students who have more interaction with campus and university administrators in particular trust those entities less. That's right. So when we, if we look at um, folks in their relative leadership position, it, it's the general member who has the highest level of trust amongst fraternity men, not the, the committee chair of, a, you know, of, a, of an important committee or even the executive board who should have more contact with both of those entities, right? With both the headquarters and the, and the campus folks and people who live in the residence, right? You, you would think that if you're living in the chapter house, you're gonna come, come more, uh, more um, in interaction with both the campus representatives that, that you know, would affect your experience as well as the headquarters folks or, or whatever. And again, the, the folks that are living in residence have the lowest scores. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's something about like prolonged contact uh, negatively affecting trust, especially as it relates to FSL. What's the old saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> it would be fascinating. I wish we could go back in time and, and, and measure the attitudes we had a decade ago and, and really see. Uh, and I think that's probably what's most exciting about this research is that if, if we are at an inflection point, as you suggest, and that, and that maybe it is switching, the fact that we've started measuring it a few years now, uh, you know, five, six, seven years from now, we revisit this idea. Will it inflect back? Will it continue in the same direction? I, I guess only time will tell. Thanks, Josh. You got it, buddy. The data that Josh shared are concerning. Not only do fraternity members have little trust of their campus administrators, but it's getting worse every year. This lack of trust has a ripple effect, moving outward, impacting the relationships between campus administrators and fraternity alumni, as well as fraternity headquarters. To help me understand this ripple effect and to understand some of the root causes of this trust gap, I decided to talk to some people who, through their own unique perspectives, have observed the growth of this trust gap over the last decade. I'm Jeremiah Shin. I serve as the Vice President for Student Affairs at Louisiana State University. 
I'm Justin Kirk, the Executive Director of Delta Upsilon Fraternity and Foundation. I'm Ryan O'Rourke. I serve as the Executive Director of the Association for Fraternal Leadership and Values. In the spirit of full transparency, Jeremiah, Justin, and Ryan are good friends of mine. But they are also the three people I immediately thought of when I began putting this episode together. Through their decades working with fraternities, they've witnessed these changes up close and personal. I began our conversation by asking them how they have seen the dynamics of the relationships between and among undergraduate fraternity members, campus administrators, headquarters, and alumni change in the time they've been doing this work. I think the relationship has become strained in the past several years. I I recall earlier points in my career where it really seemed like everyone was on the same page and working toward... um, uh, similar ends, and it doesn't feel um, like that's necessarily the case at this moment in time. And whether whether it is is another conversation. I have thoughts about that, but it it feels different. The tenor of the conversation is different. The assumption of best intentions is different. Um, and so, so I think for all those reasons, we, we're in a place where we've got some some uh, repair work to do on our relationships. It's interesting that you say that too, because I think from my perspective it actually seems like there's been more conversations around the relationship, but that it's actually driven people farther away. So it seems like there is more effort being put into it, but that uh, it's not having the positive outcome that I think people are looking for. And so I feel like that's just an interesting dichotomy because it does seem like uh, on both the headquarters and the campus side, there's a lot of conversations about the relationship. I think the distrust has grown over the last, let's just say, 10 or 15 years. And as the distrust has grown, the communication has become less. That uh, we hear less from our campus partners. We may share less information because there's just less trust in the relationship. And so if I think back 10 or 15 years ago, um, the conversations were open and we could work through issues in a very collaborative way. And I think people are much more guarded now about how they share information, how they respond, uh, how they protect their own information. And, and I think that is some of that is at the root of the distrust. When we look at this shift, this change, where fraternity undergraduate members now trust their headquarters more than they trust their campus administrators, to what do we attribute those changes? I think there's there are probably a couple of reasons um, that I see for that, and 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 on the campuses where where I've been, and 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 on the campus where I am, I mean we we we've been very invested in 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 maintaining solid relationships with students, with alumni, and with headquarters, and um, you know some of those relationships are better than others, but but that's that's how I'm inclined. I, I believe that's absolutely necessary, but I think that universities are in an era of accountability. Um, you know, certainly as we have experienced um, tragic events over the uh, over the past several years across the country there's there's more attention to um, to the role that universities play in, in keeping their students safe and and as a result I, I believe that um, uh, some universities have done amazing things and great things and have have uh, have deployed data informed approaches to to uh, health and safety I think others, have have just done whatever it took to to do something right, and and so I think that sometimes when when that's the case, there's not a conversation that's happening right. It's it's um, we have a solution. Here's the solution. Deal with it. And 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 again, I I understand all the reasons for that, and that is not something that builds trust um, among folks. It makes it seem like we're on different teams. It makes it seem like. We're not supportive of the experience. And, and so I think that's one reason. I think the other reason or another reason is related to some research that I've done with, with uh, two faculty members uh, in the past few years uh, about graduate preparation programs and, and the inclination that early career professionals are coming in with. And, and for whatever reason, and I can't describe what it is uh, necessarily on, on this podcast, but what it's not is the inclination I think that existed um, 10 or 15 years ago to really build solid relationships, right? So, so I do think that 
that some of the student leaders and some of the student organizations are feeling alienated from the folks that work most closely with them for, for myriad reasons. And so I think those are two of the things that, that I can see playing out nationally. Again, I, you know, speaking in, in, in a general sense. I do think accountability is at the uh, root of how the uh, relationship of the student has shifted from maybe being stronger with the campus to uh, moving toward the headquarters. That for a lot of different reasons, uh, campuses are taking much swifter and stricter action when it comes to accountability. And often you'll have the, the headquarters who are advocating for the students, they're advocating for the chapter and the alumni, and the students are starting to see the headquarters as the one who is there in their best interest, that they're advocating for them, that the university is taking this swift action, that they're not, uh, they haven't developed the relationships, they're not communicating, and, and so the students are looking to the headquarters to advocate for them. And so if I were to think of a very specific example that really almost embodies this, that 15 years ago, you had the University of Colorado that had an independent IFC. And the only people that really knew about Colorado were those of us that worked at a headquarters, those that maybe worked on a campus, but the Colorado independent IFC wasn't very well known across the country. If I think about what's happening today, I actually have undergraduates and alumni emailing me out of the blue, suggesting that they create a independent IFC on their campus or asking if the DU chapter can become independent of the host institution. 15 years ago, that would have never happened, but today it's happening on a fairly regular basis. I would echo, I think what both said and, and where AFLV sits in the middle of this, I think is we have conversations with campus-based professionals about thinking about the work differently, one of the things that we talk about is what's the impact of your work across the entire ecosystem of fraternity and sorority. And I think now more so than ever, there's strong relationships with a small group of students in a community uh, versus there being a solid or consistent relationship with a larger swath of the community. And then I think that's when you see some of these factors that Jeremiah and Justin said play out. Uh, is that, and, and this is coming from Greek advisors that we're asking uh, campus-based professionals anecdotally, they're just, they're in a lot of cases, the, the direct relationships they have or the impact of their work is like 10, less than 10% of the, the students in the fraternity and sorority community. Well, that just creates this opportunity for someone else to fill that relationship gap, basically. That, that's an interesting thing, Ryan. I, I've noted recently, even in some of the projects that I've done, that phenomenon where I, I will ask, if I do an external review for a campus, one of the things that I do is I will ask the staff to, the FSL staff to do a pie chart of how they spend their time. Very basic, right? Uh, but what I note is that a disproportionate amount of their time, and this is almost always true, goes to council advisement, right? So I advise the IFC officers, the Panhellenic officers. I have weekly one-on-ones. I go to their exec meetings. And so I'm spending, in a 40-hour work week, I'm spending 15 hours a week supporting and advising a handful, a couple dozen council officers. And then I will always ask chapter presidents, advisors, other the people who are actually influencing what's going on in the community, what sort of impact does IFC have in the fraternity community? And the answer is always none. They don't do anything. The meetings are a joke. They maybe do one or two programs a year. So all this time is being invested with students who serve little to no role in actually driving the culture of the fraternity and sorority community. Sometimes these students don't even have influence in their own chapters. It's like I ran for IFC because I didn't get elected to exec in my chapter, I want to do something, I'll, I'll, I'll run for IFC treasurer, right? So they, they have very little influence, and yet so much time is being invested in those students. And that, I think, goes back to the point that, that Justin, that you made, that people are seeking independent IFCs, and, and they're willing to work outside the university's recognition structure because they don't see the value of operating within that structure, right? I mean, so it would have been unthinkable a decade ago on a lot of campuses for, for students or alumni to advocate we should go independent because they saw real value add and what they were getting in terms of support, uh, advising, structure, accountability from the university. 
and they just don't see that value at anymore. And I wonder how much of that has to do with just the misallocation of time. And, and Jeremiah, I remember when you and I did the external review at, at USC a couple of years ago, this was one of the things we got into and you had kind of proposed this model. I remember you sketched out stuff on a whiteboard of like spending time with the students who are really doing the work that drives the culture versus advising governing councils. But I, I just feel like so many professionals miss the boat on that. And that's what's driving a lot of this. We've been talking a lot recently about uh, the social ecological model and just and, and put, we I uh, have been connected to this through a professional development opportunity I did in the public health space which is really uh, to summarize it in a, in a pretty basic way is influencing the things that influence the thing. And I think that that's where uh, a better allocation of time, and that could be councils or it could not be, is simply identifying what are the things that are most influential in the fraternity and sorority experience, and then trying to have an impact on those things. And, and I'm not sure that conversation is happening enough of, of truly trying to identify what are the most influential factors in a fraternity community, in a sorority community on a given campus. If I think specifically about an individual chapter, the IFC officer is the furthest away from the center of influence in the chapter. I'm not even sure the chapter president, who now is largely a sophomore, who has some relationships, I'm not even sure that the chapter president is the main influencer in the chapter, right? It's probably going to be a junior who is the past chapter president, who has multiple years of relationships in the chapter with the alumni. Uh, and that person may or may not even be on the executive board. So if all the time is being spent with the IFC officers, they're not moving the needle at all in a 130 man chapter where we largely have the majority of our problems. It's gonna be juniors who are past presidents, that they're the influencers, and they're the ones that people in the chapter are listening to. So something else that I was thinking of Gentry is when, when I interviewed um, for for my current role, I remember sitting down with with a with a with a group of fraternity and sorority members, and one of them asked me, "What are the rules that you're going to bring with you to to LSU?" and And I thought that was a really interesting question because the assumption was is that I was coming in to to bring rules, and and I said, "Listen, I I'm I'm in favor of actually having fewer rules." And more expectations, and really, I have three rules. And if we can, and if we can, if we can abide by these rules, then we don't need a fourth one for the most part. And I'm, and, and so what I said, and I said, tell me if you disagree with any of these. I said you have to protect the health and safety of your members and guests. Have to do it. Agree or disagree? They agreed. I said you have to respect the dignity of your members and every member of this university community. Agree or disagree? They agreed. And I said you can't put your headquarters or your university administration in the position of questioning whether we can support you, right? Agree or disagree. And they said, we, we agree. And so what, what's interesting about that conversation, and I've had a similar conversation with student leaders since, with alumni since, and with folks from headquarters since, no one ever disagrees with those things. We want the same things. And that's why it's so vexing sometimes um, how we're, we're sort of, we're, we're drifting apart despite almost universal agreement that yes, of course, those are the most important things. And so I think that's, that's, that's where we find ourselves is we agree um, on, on the ends, but, but certainly the means continue to be a challenge. One thing I've noticed that over the course of the pandemic is, is I feel like uh, people are going into survival mode, mode, like organizational survival mode. And so they're looking inward the most. And it's been something that we've been talking about internally is I think partnerships been deprioritized during the pandemic. And you would almost think that that's counterintuitive because uh, when resources are uh, being scaled back or when, uh, you know, there's uh, a negative impact uh, on bottom lines, um, you would think there would be opportunities for partnership. And it looked it felt to us that everyone started looking inward during the last 18 months, out, probably out of necessity in some ways. But I would be remiss to not say that I think the last 18 months uh, have uh, have certainly deprioritized partnerships, probably in a way that's outside of everyone's control. And have probably exacerbated those problems anyway, right? Sure. Just given the nature yeah. of what campus FSL offices were asked to do during COVID, so much of it was just party patrol compliance on social distancing. So headquarters right. aren't involved in these conversations at all until 
hey, we're going to shut your chapter down because they had a big party. And so what was already a devolving sense of trust just got worse because now it's like literally we're trying to sniff around and find out if you've had an off-campus social gathering. And so it just more and more of that compliance culture just kind of piling on in the last 18 months. Yeah, absolutely. We've mentioned relationships a lot uh, over the last couple of minutes and the value of relationships. And I think where there's been a real change over the last 10 years is 10 years ago, my team would invest a lot of time and resources in developing deep relationships with the fraternity sorority advisor. They were our main point of contact. Uh, We had strong relationships and largely they were handling everything from conduct to working with chapter presidents and IFC officers. And over the last five years, that's now shifted to multiple offices across the university handling different aspects. And so I, what I want to say is this, uh, this commentary certainly isn't an indictment on the fraternity sorority advisor or the fraternity sorority life office is that our team is now working with four or five different people across the given campus many of whom we've never met before. We have no relationships. They have no patience for a fraternity headquarters. They just want to move through their process. Um, They don't trust us. They don't know us. And so that's creating a lot of the distrust is we just don't have the relationships like we used to. And couple that with uh, this discussion about turnover among fraternity sorority advisors that uh, the turnover is increasing. They are younger, have less relationships. And so the relationships that we used to have where we could go to somebody and say, let's work through this, they're just not there anymore. And and there's a lot of reasons for that. So Justin, I think one of the things that I noticed in the last couple of years was it did seem like headquarters were uh, trying to establish relationships at different levels within an institution, Uh, like spending more time with like a Jeremiah, senior student affairs officer. Um, Has that positively impacted things in DU as an example, or, or just the rationale behind that? Cause I do feel like that was a relatively new evolution over the last couple of years pre pandemic. Yeah. The new phenomenon is we, we now need to figure out who is it, who's at the top of the organizational structure that we can have a relationship with because it's impossible to have relationships with five offices across the campus. So if Jeremiah is the vice president who has oversight over all these offices, it's in our best interest to have the relationship with Jeremiah to work through things Um, because you just don't have the time to build relationships with all of these offices on 70 or 100 or 150 campuses. Uh, Who's the person we can go to? Well, at LSU, I can call Jeremiah and we can work through it. I can't call six other offices if we have an issue. And and I think that there are examples of that starting to happen. I know that the Southeastern Conference um, has has been in a formal relationship with a number of fraternity executives just to build those, just just to build relationships to know he, who each other are, and I think that has yielded some some really positive outcomes. And and again, that's hard to scale. I mean, there are thousands of institutions across the country, and and I, and I know that. You know, we certainly have a lot of the students that, that are in fraternities and sororities, but um, it doesn't scale beyond us 14. And so we've got to find a way to, to do this nationally just to, to do exactly what what um, what Justin said. The other thing that I that I think about is. I think we're in a place right now where for a number of reasons, for for structural reasons, for for cultural reasons, for political reasons, for for all sorts of reasons, we're, we're in a place where there are a number of fraternity headquarters that have not operated in good faith. There are a number of universities that have not operated in good faith, right? And so, so it's one of those things where I think that, um, I, I know that there are some fraternities that have kind of spoiled it for, for, for Justin and, and others that are trying to actually be in partnership with higher education. I'm a pretty atypical vice president in that I've been an AFA president. I used to be a fraternity and sorority advisor. I grew up in this, in this field. I know the people. And so I know how to distinguish between the good actors and the less good actors. Not everybody in my role do or does, and, and certainly most don't. And, and so I think that that's an issue. One of the issues, though, is, and, and I've said this to, to Justin and, and, and others of his colleagues, is, 
you know, whereas universities are not connected in any way, um, we don't get to have expectations of each other in the same way. A lot of times fraternities are through their own uh, associations. And so I do believe that that um, there is an opportunity for for fraternities to to reel in some of their some of their bad actors, the ones that are not interested in a conversation or a, or a relationship with higher education, because I do think that that's that's one of the issues. We've both got issues to solve. We've both got structural pieces that are driving the relationships apart. Um, but I think we've got to start somewhere. And, and, and I hope that my colleagues on the headquarters side will begin to, to consider how they might better align with those groups that really want to be a part of, of, a, of a productive conversation with higher education. Uh, well, 10 years ago, uh, when Delta Ubisoft was creating its strategic plan, which Jeremiah was a part of as a facilitator, uh, the board landed on our organizational philosophy to be the most trusted partner in higher education. And every decision we made, every interaction with the university, we would overlay that philosophy over the decision. And so you make very different decisions and you approach things in a different way if you're thinking, how do I need to do this to be considered the most trusted partner in higher education? And I think that philosophy served us well for six, seven, eight years. And there might be a one-off every other year where uh, we approached the decision in that way. And um, we, we just weren't treated what I would call fairly by an individual campus. What I'm observing more over the last couple of years is we're coming with this approach of wanting to be the most trusted partner, but it's not serving us well. Um, the last couple of years, because we're, we're now being treated just like everybody else is being treated, which I don't think is unreasonable, but, um, you know, we might share information with a conduct office and they take the information, go discipline our chapter and completely cut us out of the conversation. And so now I'm left thinking this most trusted partner, if, if the university doesn't want to be a partner with us, is this still a philosophy that serves our organization well? And that's a really hard decision for us to arrive at when this has been at the core of who we are as an organization for our staff team, for our board to think about that we want to be this trusted partner. And ultimately, my job is to do what's in the best interest of Delta Upsilon. And in many cases, being the most trusted partner now is not in the best interest of Delta Upsilon. And, and we're going to have to wrestle with that over the next six to nine months and think about how does that philosophy play out going forward. I think it's reasonable. Justin mentioned that um, you know they're being treated like everyone else. That's one of those issues where I don't think it's unreasonable for an organization like a Delta Upsilon, for an organization like a fill in the blank on on any college campus to to be doing everything by the book right, be adding tremendous value to the to the lives of their students. I don't think it's unreasonable for them to expect to to have to have uh, different privileges or at least not have their privileges revoked because someone else um, uh, might have violated uh, a trust that the university has. So, so I think that's a really reasonable thing that I would, you know, any of my colleagues that are, that are listening to this podcast, I hope that they would consider um, what incentive there is for, or for an organization to function well, to do the right things. If at the end of the day, they'll be subject to the same um, sanctions, uh, perhaps that, that, that those uh, organizations are that did the wrong things. And so I think that's something that we've got to grapple with um, from a university perspective as well. And it, at the end of the day, this is a, it's a metrics issue. It's a data issue, right? Because Jeremiah, as he stated, he's one of the few vice presidents who knows, right, who knows who the bad actors are. And we, we could list off the bad actors. And if if we all made our list of bad actors and Venn diagrammed it, the overlap would be probably 90 percent. Like it, we all know who those bad actors are, but most vice presidents don't. And so short of just telling them, hey, these people are bad actors, it's like you've got to have a subjective way to tabulate okay, how many underground, unrecognized chapters are they operating? How many independent IFCs are they a part of? How many, um, how many campuses have they crashed, you know, with regards to colonization? And I don't, maybe this is where we pull Steve Veldkamp or someone like that into this conversation. And Ryan, I think AFLV's always been kind of uniquely positioned to, to kind of get into this space, but 
can we gather and provide data so that vice presidents can look at a list and say, here are people who are meeting a set of metrics that make them good partners, and we shouldn't treat them like everyone else. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely an appetite for it uh, through some of the conversations that I think all of us have been a part of in different ways in NASPA and, and, and trying to figure out the future of fraternity and sorority. Uh, AFLV is in a unique position where um, we are able to pose different questions than some organizations can. And, and what we have heard in any setting we're in with people in Jeremiah's role or, or senior student affairs officers is just tell us what to do. Like, I think people want to decrease the amount of time they're spending on this. So they're looking for guidance or some sort of matrix to make decisions. Um, and, and to this point, I think this could be a way that could make uh, senior student affairs officers' lives easier in terms of how they allocate resources and time to the fraternity and sort of experience. Um, every conversation I've been in with someone like Jeremiah and Jeremiah's role, there seems to be a, a high appetite for something like that to exist. It needs to happen sooner than later um, as this, this growing gap of distrust um, continues to increase. And so I, I think even my peers and hopefully a campus uh, partner would say the same, but my peers would certainly say that um, I or Delta Upsilon certainly is one of the most campus friendly organizations that when we get into these discussions with my peers that they'll say, well, Justin, you're one of the most campus friendly on these issues. You know, what are your thoughts? Right. And so we'll, we'll just put us over here with a group of other organizations that everybody could probably name. Now, if I'm over there on the continuum, on the, let's just say the far left side, and now I'm starting to reconsider how I work with campuses and what my relationship is, and I'm considered all the way on the far end of the continuum, <laughs> think about where those who might be in the middle are, right? Where they may have evolved to, or those who are on the other side of the continuum and uh, where their interest is in working with the campus. So once we start to lose those who have been... Um, faithful and loyal and really invest in relationships, once we, we start questioning the relationship, I, I'm, I have a lot of concern for the broader industry and this relationship when there's people on, uh, let me just say the far left, questioning it. So I really thought Justin's observation here, that if you're losing the groups on his end of the spectrum, you're in really big trouble, was both insightful and concerning. When the relationships are so bad that you're losing the trust and goodwill of those groups, it's hard for me to imagine how those relationships can be repaired. One of the big drivers influencing the tension in these relationships has to do with the manner in which college campuses are investigating and adjudicating organizational misconduct. When I conduct training for conduct officers, I often ask them to rate on a 1 to 10 scale the extent to which they feel like their process feels transparent and builds trust between the campus and these fraternal constituents, and the scores are always really, really low. This knowledge, combined with our general observation that most campuses just aren't doing a good job of managing these conduct processes, is what drove us to create shameless plug time the Dyad Model Code for Student Organization Conduct, a free resource available on the Dyad Strategies website. I asked Justin and Jeremiah to share their thoughts on how this process in particular is driving some of the challenges associated with the trust gap. The profile of the person handling these conduct cases is very different than it was 10 years ago, where we largely don't have relationships. And, and I've always thought that um, Delta Upsilon and whatever university, it is a longstanding relationship that will outlast me. It'll outlast the students. It'll outlast the person who's working on the campus, that the relationship ultimately is bigger than all of us. But what I'm seeing in many of these conduct cases is the, the conduct officer will send a, a letter to a, an allegations letter to a chapter and not even include the international headquarters in the conversation. And so in many cases, we're getting the allegation letter from an alumni advisor or the chapter president saying that there's an issue and, and can we help? And so that conduct officer doesn't even see us as an entity or a body that should be involved in this. And, and my position has always been the relationship is between the international fraternity and the university, not the local chapter. The local chapter operates because we give them charter to operate. And so to start, we should be involved in all of those conversations from the start that uh, in the best case scenario, and, and we've done this on a couple campuses, 
our staff is interviewing students at the same time as the university investigator, that we're doing it together. Uh, we're asking similar questions, we're listening, we're conferring, and, and then we're determining how serious of an issue is it? How can we address it as an organization? And what does the campus need to do to address it? And how can we come to a reasonable uh, solution? And so I, I think the organizations that really do wanna hold chapters and individuals accountable, that's the approach they want. And, and if it's a severe situation, we will hold them accountable in many cases it'll be more severe for those students than what the university does. But we need to be a part of that process and, uh, and the conduct officer needs to look at us as a partner and look at us as somebody who does wanna hold these people accountable. What are, what are the Paragon campuses out there? You know, if, if a campus said, hey, we, we want to be good partners, you've, you've mentioned that you've had a couple of really good experiences. What are some of the campuses that, that a conduct officer could call their colleague and say, how, how are you partnering? What does that look like? Who, who would you send people to? The campuses that have done this really well, it starts with a collaboration on the campus side mm -hmm. that the conduct officer knows that the FSL office typically has the relationship, right? And so the FSL office is reaching out and saying, here's the allegation letter. You'll be working with this person. And so any information that we share, we should have all of us included in the chain. And if it's a more serious allegation, we'll include an associate or a assistant vice president or some other director. So the conversation starts with all of the entities um, being involved. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had an incident at Indiana University and our team went down and we sat in the room with the university investigators. And as we interviewed the students, we were all working together and we came to a, a what I think was a pretty good resolution on how we were going to address the behavior in the chapter. And so really it's, it's how does the university start with bringing everybody to the table, especially those with the relationships and then allow us to work through it as a team. Awesome. I wondered Gentry, if, if part of the problem hasn't been how we've talked about this a little bit and saying we need to get the campus uh, FSL pro out of the, judicial process when really we just don't need them in the adjudication process, but they should still be a connector between the process Absolutely. and the headquarters. But I think the language we use sometimes could reinforce the, like, you just need to be extricated from that process completely. Yeah. When in reality, we need them to be the connector between the two entities. When, based when on we do this training, you know, the way we describe it is you should be very involved at the beginning right? In terms of notification, getting on the same page, you're, you're the connector there. You're, you're the person who has influence in all of those spheres, not involved at all in the middle during the investigation and adjudication process, and then re-involved, very involved at the end as we talk about outcomes, what needs to happen. Again, of, of course, the FSL office needs to be driving that conversation because they know and understand the culture better than the conduct office does. And so it's, it's, it's a lot of involvement at the beginning and at the end and no involvement in the middle is, I think, kind of ideal in that situation. Yeah, I think the nuance there is pretty important. Absolutely. Just reinforcing. Yeah. So, Jeremiah, I, same I, question to you from, from a campus perspective. What do you need? What do you look for uh, out of a, a partnership with a, a national fraternity when, you, when you're investigating or, or dealing with uh, org misconduct? Well, it has been my experience that the process works better when we work closely with the headquarters to the extent that it's possible in that particular scenario. And, and I say that with, with a bit of equivocation because, you know, now that we have hazing laws and, and, and different states doing different things, there are more constraints now on that conversation than there have been in the past. And the timeline is different than it has been in the past. And so it's harder. It's absolutely harder, but I still believe that it's been my experience that we're, we're better when we work together on this. At the end of the day, we're going to hold students accountable when they run afoul of, 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 our, of our community expectations. And in general, headquarters are not opposed to that, right? Um, and so I think that sometimes uh, we might assume that, we're, that we don't agree on that basic fact. And I think usually we do. Um, something that I think about a lot is, and just taking our responsibility for our own processes, we're, we need to hold students accountable when they run afoul, but the process itself cannot undermine trust. Um, it, it, it can't show up as if it's a stacked deck. Um, it can't show up as if we've assumed an outcome in advance. 
It can't show up as if we're assuming uh, an assumption of responsibility. I think that we need to be very, very conscious of giving students due process. And again, we're we are not trying to um, we're not trying to minimize the accountability. But even if a student, a group of alumni, a headquarters disagrees with the outcome, I always want them to have faith in the process. And so, and, and I think from a headquarters perspective, we want to have faith in their process too. When you have a chapter that has has an obvious um, uh, history of of hazing culture that that has some deeply rooted issues, and the the headquarters comes in and does a membership review and they remove five individuals from a 150 person chapter, I don't have faith in that process. I don't believe they've done what they can do to remedy that situation. And so that changes the, con the conversation about what we need to do from a university perspective. But if we go in with everyone uh, on the same page about really, really setting a chapter forward and, and, and helping to set them on a path toward success, which means basic health and safety, I think we can all get behind that. I agree with Jeremiah in that um, when I talk with my colleagues and those who I have uh, the most similar thoughts with or um, that, I, that I have conversations with on a regular basis, it, they all want to hold their chapters accountable if we find that the chapter did something to violate our policies. Right? There, there's no disagreement on that. Where there is disagreement and where we have this conflict is on the edges of what we deem to be acceptable accountability measures for the given violation, right? If we close a chapter, if you say a chapter can't recruit for a semester, two semesters, three semesters, or you suspend them for two years, but they can operate, but can't recruit, that is going to um, put any organization and their executive and their board and their alumni in conflict, right? And so I think those measures need to be reserved for the most severe cases. And in, in the most severe cases, the reasonable People can all agree this is a really severe case and we need to do something about it. I think too often some of those measures come into play on other incidents that just aren't that severe. And they've become these go-tos for, well, chapters in trouble. We're not going to allow them to recruit next semester. Well, that doesn't really get to the root cause of the issue. So I, I think we can all agree that there needs to be accountability and most people will work, but we just need to understand what are going to be the the measures that cause the most conflict. And if they're going to be on the table, let's put them on the table on the front end and start to talk about them. I, I, Justin, can you, just one thing I want to touch base on that real fast is it, I, this is something we hear a lot at, at the intersection of this conversation is that there's, there, the, there's a, an assumption of competing interests between campuses and headquarters and that uh, your, that a headquarters is focused on bottom line or on numbers or money. And, you and I've had this conversation a, a bunch of times, but uh, that also comes with an assumption that you continue to maintain the same level of service. So can you just like quickly talk about some of that, that conversation that we've had before about impacting the bottom line also impacts the service level, because I feel like that gets lost sometimes. It does. I think the, uh, for many organizations, and I'm not going to speak for them, I'll just speak for DU, is uh, health and safety is the number one priority, right? That, that comes before any bottom line conversation. And so if we can evaluate the, if there's an incident or evaluate the culture of the chapter and look at it from a health and safety lens, I think we're starting in a really good place, right? That should be first and foremost. When you close a 120-man chapter, there is an absolute impact to the bottom line. There's an uh, impact to the bottom line of the international organization and my budget and what we can do and, and possibly how many staff we can have the next year. There's certainly a bottom line impact to a house corporation on how they're going to continue to operate. Um, and so the bottom line does matter, but it doesn't matter more than health and safety, sure. right? And so if we were to play this out, health and safety is most important. If we disregard that to think about the bottom line, what ultimately could become an outcome would be an incident that is so large that you then get sued and it impacts your insurance rates, which then impacts the organization across the board. And rising insurance rates is probably the greatest concern right now for all of my colleagues and those insurance rates everybody's bottom line. Um, so if we can just go back and say, we all care about health and safety, let's start there first, right? And then we can just move across the different measures and figure out where we can get to a reasonable place. 
Justin, I did want to respond to something that you said a minute ago, because I think it, it also needs to be said. I don't think I can't let me say it this way. I can't think of a single example where I would get behind disallowing a chapter to recruit as a sanction. If it is so bad that that you would disallow a chapter to recruit new members for a set period of time, why wouldn't you just close the chapter? If our goal is culture change and, and part of the parameters needs to be how can you recruit higher quality members, it's the quick death versus the slow death. And when chapters feel like they have been set up for failure and when alumni feel like the chapter that they love and that they support has been set up for failure, why would I go along with that? And to me, a limitation on recruitment is just that. It's nothing that's going to positively impact culture. It's setting this chapter up for a slow death. And if it's so bad that we would do that, why not just drop the guillotine and do the quick death? Like, why would we ever disallow a chapter to recruit? I, I can't think of a single example of a behavior where I, I would get behind that as, a, as an outcome of a disciplinary process. I have a hard time wrapping my head around why you wouldn't allow somebody to recruit, but we actually have one uh, campus situation, conduct situation where we're dealing with this year, where we had a, we identified a health risk with an individual student in the chapter last year. We called the university immediately. We thought that their team should intervene. They did intervene. Um, they found some violations of the chapter. So they suspended the chapter for one year but they're gonna come back next fall and they're not allowed to do anything for this year. And so we suggested, can we do virtual workshops? Can the new president come to our President's Academy? Can they come to our Regional Leadership Academy? Can our staff liaison work with the chapter to help build culture? No, you can't do any of those things. And what, I, what I'm having a hard time understanding is what will be different next fall when the chapter begins to operate again, other than being nine or 10 members less than they were this time this year, right? So it just doesn't make any sense to me to have a sanction where they can't recruit and you can't educate and they can't come to your programs where all, those are all the things that would help us change the culture in the chapter so they're more successful in the future. At the end of the day, I believe that the trust gap is a health and safety issue. As these relationships continue to devolve and more and more alumni and headquarters are willing to defy university mandates and operate unrecognized chapters as part of independent IFCs, the resulting lack of effective university oversight will create environments where the fraternity experience is inherently less safe. That strikes me as perhaps the most significant impact that the trust gap is having. If we don't figure this out, the experience will become less and less safe. My default position is uh, the, the experience is always safer when there's more people who have oversight and accountability mechanisms. Our team went back and looked at the last couple years of incident reporting. And so when one of our chapters violated our policies, where did the report come from? 75% of the time, it's coming from the host institution. Students aren't calling and saying, by the way, this past Friday, we hazed somebody at the chapter house, or just want to let you know, Sunday, we violated the substance-free housing policy and we had a keg at the house. These incident reports are largely coming from allegation letters from the university. So if we don't have that relationship, I wonder where would we ever find out about the incidents in our chapters until they became the most severe incidents that That's end right. up on the front page of a newspaper, right? And so Gentry, you're right that... The more people we can have involved in overseeing and, and holding people accountable, the safer our chapters are going to be. And you can even see, Gentry, on, a, the, on the point of independent IFCs, the fact that students are using that language tells you that we are influencing them in the dynamics of this relationship, right? That's not something they're coming to on their own. They're hearing that from alumni or from their headquarters or, or, or some other uh, ideological point from the campus side. So clearly... This, um, this gap in relationship or this disconnect is influencing them in a way where they feel like they have to pick sides or start using the language of a certain side. And um, that's absolutely taking them off of what they should be doing. To wrap up our conversation, I asked Jeremiah, Justin, and Ryan to talk about where we need to go from here. What tangible steps can we begin taking to rebuild the trust gap in the fraternity industry? I think that uh, the first thing that has come out through this conversation is 
I think if we can all get on board with the idea that not all campuses are created equal and not all headquarters are created equal, I think uh, organizations should be treated differently based on what they're bringing to the table and how relationship focused they want to be. But um, I think that both sides need to get in conversation about how they can help each other navigate some of these things. I think the way we hear this conversation a lot is we're not getting what we want from the other side. And that isn't a part, that's not partnership focus. That is you trying to put your will onto the other side. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's just the more that uh, we can set some of these things aside and just prioritize um, being in conversations with one another my experience tells me that that typically will lead to positive outcomes. Um, but it, it, it has to come in with a, with, I mean, it sounds obvious, but there has to be mutual benefit. Uh, otherwise I think people will enter the conversation in a defensive way or in a way that they continue not to trust the other side. I think there's needs to be an entity and maybe AFLV is the entity that starts bringing people back to the table. And so when we start focusing on the relationship with the vice president of student affairs, we are such a small portion of Jeremiah's portfolio that he doesn't have all the time in the day to think about fraternity and sorority and invest in the relationships and think about how do we bring everybody back to the table. When I talk to my colleagues, there are a lot fewer of them going to the AFA annual meeting this year. I'll be very interested to see how many headquarters folks are at the meeting because um, I think it's going to be down in attendance. And that had always been the gathering place at least once a year where the majority of the headquarters staff and nearly everybody who works with fraternity and sororities would come together and have conversation and participate in programming. And I'm just not sure that that's gonna to continue to be the venue going forward, right? And I'll be interested to see what happens this year at the meeting, but from what I'm hearing, it's not gonna be. And so if the VPs don't have the time to do it, it may not happen at AFA, where would this conversation even happen? There needs to be somebody that brings people back to the table and says, we need a reset. Reasonable minds can disagree on some things, but we have to come together for the best interest of the students. And somebody is gonna to need to lead that charge because another year or two of this lack of communication and disintegrating relationships is gonna result in more independent IFCs and more conflict, which is not in the best interest of our students. Coming out of the pandemic, I think this topic is timely. And Gentry, I'm glad that you raised the conversation in a podcast. Um, there will be people who agree and disagree with all of our comments. And that's okay, because this is bubbling underneath the surface for everybody, right? You can have side conversations with your peers and you can just hear these little side comments about the distrust and lack of communication and what's happening to the relationship, but it's not really being discussed on the broader scale. And um, we all spent last year dealing with so many issues and just hoping to survive the year and come out in a better place. Well, now that we're back to some sense of normalcy, this is a conversation that's bubbling, but it needs to be brought to the surface. And hopefully this podcast will have more people talking about it and talking about it where they can discuss it and agree and disagree and debate it. And that's what will be most helpful. And that's what will get us to a better place. Of course, I want this podcast to generate discussion. That's why I do these things. It's not for my health. And I hope it certainly isn't for anyone's entertainment. The goal from day one has been that the Dyad podcast would drive conversations in the fraternity and sorority industry. But I've never wrapped up an episode offering that challenge, but I'm about to make an exception. Justin is absolutely right. This is something we need to be talking about. Our VPSAs, deans of students, conduct officers, they all need to be aware of the trust gap. They need to understand the implications of the trust gap. They need to understand how the decisions they are making, the processes they are overseeing, and the manner in which they choose to engage and communicate are all contributing to the trust gap. They need to understand the impact that a philosophy of treat everyone the same and shut all fraternities down when one fraternity screws up is having, particularly on those groups that have legitimately tried to be good partners. Most importantly, they need to understand how all of this ultimately impacts the safety of the fraternity experience. So talk with your colleagues. 
Share this podcast episode with them and then facilitate a dialogue about the steps your campus can take to begin to rebuild these relationships. Touch base with your alumni volunteers. Get them involved in the conversation. At the end of the day, we all want the same thing. Specifically, we want fraternities to be a safe and positive developmental experience for the young people who join. We just have to collectively figure out a better way to get there. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com. Thank you.